The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we are celebrating the 80th birthday of Bob Dylan. I'm very privileged to be joined by Andrew Motion, the former poet laureate and long-standing Dylan fan, and by the man often described as the king of the Dylanologists, Clinton Halen, whose new book is the first in a two-part projected biography of his Bobness, which is called... The Double Life of Bob Dylan, A Restless, Hungry Feeling. Welcome both. At the risk of starting with a question that's a bit too general, what's so great about Bob Dylan? (laughs) You go first, Andrew. Really? Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, there is no single answer to that, Sam. I mean by that not only that he's a very multifaceted kind of genius, but also that everybody... I shouldn't speak for Clinton in this, but it seems to me that almost everybody who has this sort of affection for Dylan feels it in a peculiarly intimate way, so they can only answer it for themselves rather than, as you say, in in the more general terms. For me, it comes really under those two, two headings, I suppose. One is thinking about what he's managed to do as an artist, which is to crystallise and at the same time resurrect an entire tradition of American and actually international, but originally American folk music in order to connect it with other kinds of music and make it universal. And to combine that resurrection and the extraordinary elaboration of those traditions through his own strictly musical genius with writing words to go with it that are really, in my opinion, unparalleled in their interest, complexity, entertainment value, you name it. So there's all that to say about him as an artist. And then individually, I mean, for me personally... And I think I probably do speak for everybody else who's taken him to heart as I say this. He's someone who has really, through all my adult life now, been so closely connected with everything else I've done in my life that I simply can't separate it or him from it or it from him. In other words, throughout my existence, he's had the words, he's had the melody that in some sense or other accompanies what I've been up to since I reckon I was about 13 years old and I'm now 68, so that really is almost all my sort of fully conscious life. There's much more to say about that, but I'll I'll pause there and let Clinton... I should just briefly say, when did you first hear him out of interest? Do you remember? Yes, well, I've been forcing myself to remember, expecting you might ask this question. When his first album came out in 1962, I was 10, and I don't think I was listening to anything except my father's collection of vinyl recordings of the ink spots at that stage. I mean, there simply, it wasn't a musical house that I was growing up in. The first album that I bought, and this makes me feel rather of a late arrival, was Highway 61 Revisited, which came out when I was 13. Um, So I wasn't too slow off the marks, but I slightly chide myself thinking I could have been there a year or two earlier. Though I forgive myself really by reminding myself that Dylan did release seven albums in seven years, so he was being very, very busy right there at the beginning of his life, and I would have had to be um, extremely precocious to be there at the very beginning. 
And Clinton, what, what for you is the draw? Because you spent, you know, this is your 13th book, I think, on the subject of Dylan. Uh, no, it's only Howard Soons that thinks it's 13. I believe on the inside jacket, it quite clearly says nine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, I've, I've spent an enormous amount of, of time and my of my so-called writing career writing about this man because I find him endlessly fascinating. And as Andrew alluded to there, one of the key fascinations is this sinking in with the popular culture of his day. I just can't imagine popular culture in the period that we've lived through without Bob Dylan having a key soundtrack role to play. So, you know, that's... Uh, I've, I've often said we should have a sense of gratitude that we're living at the same time. To be able to experience his latest album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, in the middle of a pandemic, to have that very personal, very intimate record uh, and be able to, to revel in it in these very strange circumstances. Completely unconsciously, he tapped into something that hadn't even happened, just as in 2001, Love and Theft, which many people saw as something of a comeback album, was released on 9-11. And uh, I was in America on 9-11 and in fact, I was actually booked on one of the planes they shot down two days later. Uh, you know, the experience of listening to that album, listening to songs like High Water, you know, whilst the world really is on fire, there's some kind of preternatural sinking in with the world as it turns that Dylan has always been able to do. And even in his most personal songs, you know, something like Idiot Wind, a lot of people have made the allusion to Watergate. You know, someone's got it in for me, they're planting stories in the press. You know, it's a song about the breakup of a marriage, but somehow it's also about these other things that are going on on this sort of macrocosmic scale. So he's always, always fascinated. The only other thing that I would add to Andrew's considerable list is Dylan's genius as a performing artist. You know, I mean, he is a consummate performer. Uh, of course, He's 80 years old now. Uh, we can't seriously expect him to have the electric intensity of the 1960s or indeed the 1970s. But his performance are shifted. John Baldy described him as the chameleon poet, but he's also the chameleon performer. And you're constantly thinking about that. I was reading up today for volume two on the Rolling Thunder tours. And, you know, he did two tours within six months. They're night and day, and they're almost the benchmark of what kind of Dylan fan you are. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer the wonderful, well-worked-out, same set every night, band knows what it's doing, 1975 Rolling Thunder, or do you prefer the complete and total chaos, Dylan absolutely out of his mind in agony at the collapse of his marriage and a recently acquired cocaine habit, railing at the world in absolute intensity and ripping the set list off? Which do you prefer? I mean, I love them both, of course, but that's, that's the man, that's the Gemini. That's why I called the book The Double Life of Bob Dylan. It's not just because it's two volumes, but because it's about a life that is a double life. Well, is it double or is it more plural than that? Because, the, you know, the Bob Dylans you describe even in your first volume, there isn't any single one that seems to be pinnable down. I mean, you know, there's the, the rock and roller as a teenager who then kind of reinvents himself as a folkie and then leaves. Like, I mean, he's constantly on the move, isn't he? 
Oh, uh, absolutely. And uh, and obviously, I, I quote the famous line from uh, the guy who ran the Cafe Expresso in Woodstock. He has so many sides, he's round. <laughs> and uh, I, I love that line, you know. But that says it, absolutely. Can, can I jump in just to say, I mean, really only to agree with what Clinton's saying. I mean, first of all, about the question of being grateful to be alive at the same time. I felt very glad to be alive when Larkin was alive so that I could read his new books as they came out. Not very often, but there they sporadically were. I felt very glad to be alive at the same time as Seamus Heaney, whose books came out more regularly. And in exactly the same sort of way, I feel deeply glad to be alive as Dylan is still walking the earth and, and producing these things, still at quite regular intervals, remarkably regular intervals, really, considering his, his vintage. And just to add something perhaps about the other very good point that Clinton is making about the way in which Dylan's lyrics have the ability to reflect our times back at us, even though they might not specifically be about things or be anticipating things that are of historical moment. That seems to me to have something to do with the way in which his language operates actually, physically, in the present and in those sort of fundamental ways, but also metaphorically, so that like poets, language is do at their best operate metaphorically so that we can simultaneously say that he does anticipate things in history but we can also say that the language is flexible enough to accommodate our readings of history into him I think as in the case of the, the 9-11 reference and so on and so forth and actually just very quickly about the live performances too yes I completely agree the last time I saw him which was here in Baltimore where he very graciously managed to sing one of the songs in which which actually mentions Baltimore. Actually, Baltimore does crop up in quite a lot of the songs, doesn't it, Clinton? I think it's probably easier to rhyme with in some, in some places, so there might be that <laughs> yes, yes. to it. And he was more or less static, of course, in this performance, as he has been now for some years. But it does mean that we're all absolutely on the edge of our seats in the audience, waiting for him to move in that curiously rigid way or stab at the keyboard, as he occasionally does with those stiff-looking fingers that he now, now has. So absolutely mesmeric still in, in performance. Andrew, you, you used the word poet, and it's maybe an old chestnut, but if, even if we can agree that what Dylan is doing is extraordinary, is it literature or is it something different? Well, when I think about this question, which, of course, does come round like the proverbial, the first thing that comes into my, into, my, into my mind is a remark that Robert Lowell made somewhere or other. Clinton will be able to remember this, and I, and I can't place it exactly, but Lowell said of him, he leans on the crutch of his guitar... In other words, if you come at him as a straight poet and just expect it to happen on the page and that to be the, the story of the work or the basis of whatever story you want to tell about the work, then there might be times at which you feel disappointed because the, you might find some thinness in the words which can be compensated for by the melody or the skill of the musicians or whatever it might be. But that seems to me, with deep respect to Lowell, a kind of profoundly wrong way to think about this. And what we should instead do is think about Dylan as somebody who sings his poems. And once you've made that adjustment in your, in your mind, you stop thinking about where one might be covering for the other or making up for some slightness in the other. And you just start to think about the whole thing as a, well, as a whole thing. And on those terms, I, I don't have any problems with it at all. So lines that on the page you might think, actually, he's inverted the normal grammatical sequence in order to hit the rhyme in this line, or there's a bit of kind of flabbiness in this line, etc., etc. where if the melody is doing its work, those things don't prevent me from enjoying myself. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, people seem very hung up about the idea of a poet as being fixed on the page. You know, an oral poetry is considerably older 
the, the poetry of the page. And part of the fascination of Dylan is the way that he tapped into that tradition, which, as I say, is hundreds of years old, and saw it as a way of having a voice. I mean, as, as I say in the new book, we discovered a collection of early poems from Dylan that were auctioned recently from his time in college in Minneapolis in 1960. And it's his attempt to be a beat poet. And they're really not very good. <laughs> they're very illuminating in terms of him psychologically. But, you know, as you would expect of a 19-year-old fledgling poet, they're just, you know, they are juvenilia. But what's remarkable is that within nine months of that, he's writing song to Woody, or perhaps his first breakthrough song. The point being that in between that period, he's discovered Woody Guthrie, and he's discovered, most importantly, that Guthrie never wrote any of his tunes. He borrowed them. All of his tunes are borrowed, and the light bulb went off. I can do that. that. I can use that format to have a voice, and the voice that he had was the spoken voice. I'll know my song well until I start, you know, yeah. until I start singing. There, there, there is a, a fascinating detail to me in your your book that Dylan, at least early in his career, when he's writing songs, he's got a typewriter, not a guitar. Yeah, isn't that unbelievable? I mean, I, I asked lots of people about this because it's something nobody ever picked up on particularly. We knew because the manuscripts are typed. You know, almost all the early 60s manuscripts are typed. So it seemed kind of extraordinary. But as soon as you started asking people, they all went, oh, yeah, now you come to mention it. Yeah, <laughs> everything was typed. Uh, it is. I don't know how. I have no idea how, as a, as a writer, how you do that. I mean, I don't know. How can you possibly write hard rains are going to fall on a typewriter? I just... It, it... Indeed. And, and often, I, I can't now remember whether this is true of that song in particular, but but often with quite a lot of other stuff going on around him. So an amazing yeah, powers of concentration. <laughs> they're playing cards in the same room. I mean, and we're not talking right. quiet people here. We're talking focus. If they're playing poker <laughs> behind him, I mean, we're talking, you know, a riot going on. We're not talking about, you know, his, right. his girlfriend reading a book in the background, you know. But isn't that, um, isn't that fascinating about somebody finding their own true note through an amalgamation of other people's voices. It's the, the idea of the kind of cormorant poet, isn't it? Gobbling down absolutely everything that comes along and digesting it to varying degrees and regurgitating it. And in the regurgitation, the, the thing becoming his own. Well, that's it. But the thing is that it's becoming his own, yeah. I mean, it's, it's that point at which he finds his own voice. And, and we can all argue about when is the point that that he does. You know, it is definitely that point. I mean, I make a little dig at Bob in the book where I say that um, he dismisses Let Me Die in My Footsteps, one of the songs he wrote in 1962, saying that was not an important song. And I actually believe that he's having a go at me because I describe it as, in Behind the Shades, I describe it as his first masterpiece. I'm interested actually in that, in that Dylan... You know, aloof though he may be, is presumably, after all this time, pretty aware of your work. How does he regard it? Because he spent an awful lot of time trying to create a myth, and you spent a lot of time going around kicking the stilts out from under it. Very much so, and of course, particularly with this book, because Chronicles has come out. The one thing that we never had was Dylan's version of events, if you like. And then in 2004, we did. And 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 you're reading it and you're going, 
there's more fiction in this than Lord of the Rings. You know, it's, <laughs> it's you know, and uh, I have a bit of a go at a couple of the reviewers of that book for describing it as honest and forthright. Obviously, I put their noses out of joint because they gave it back to me in spades in their reviews of my book. But, uh, you know, how could you believe that that book was honest and forthright? Indeed. No, you mustn't worry about that because you were, you were completely right about that. And which reminds me to say something that we also ought to say before we lose the tail of this bit of the conversation, which is that this business about finding himself through the amalgamation of others connects very interestingly, doesn't it, with not being there. I mean, with the person who's always escaping from situations in which he, he finds himself. So many of the songs are about that, as well as, in some sense, the story of his life being shaded, evasive, skipping away, not being pinnable down, all those kinds of things. Well, I mean, he has, again, this absolute ability to be at a party and yet separate from it, you know. Right. Uh, you know right. And, and that's, a, you know, it is also very much that thing, I'm, I'm sure you've seen, Andrew, that great writers observe. And in order to be an observer, you have to be somehow invisible. I very much feel that in general about good writers, that there is something spectral about them. I mean, they're both passionately and often very sensuously involved with the life that's going on around them, but in some sense absent from it at the same time. Um, and that is evidently deeply true of, of him. Is this business of his escaping from his life or escaping from his personae into other ones... I mean, do you see it as the enabling condition of his art or as part of the art itself, as part of the sort of performance of the myth of Bob Dylan? Well, both, I, I think. And it's very, I mean, it would be difficult to make a separation, in fact, wouldn't it? Because if we're saying that this is something which is true of the artistic temperament at its best, very often anyway, this elusiveness, what we find in the case of Dylan is somebody for whom that's manifestly true in the story of his life. But it's also not just in some sense, an aspect of the formation of the work in relation to the business of accumulating material from others, as we've been saying, but it's also one of its main subjects. I mean, it's actually what, what he writes about a great deal of the, of the time. So it seems to me absolutely central. I mean, the other thing, of course, to consider is that certainly from 1964 onwards is that he knows that his work is going to be scrutinised. Right. And therefore he can't place it at the centre point, it's got to shift because otherwise the work dies. You know, if it's obvious what he's talking about, then people move on. You know, it has to be constant. It has to be like Mercury. So, you, you know, as the work progresses, the sense of self-awareness grows, if you like. Well, there's that famous line, isn't there? Something going on, happening here, but you don't know what it is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's um, a quote that I use in, in the new book, from a guy called Earl Leaf, and he's talking to Dylan about the LA press conference in December 1965, and this is only four months later, three or four months later, and they're talking about it, and he's saying, uh, describing how Dylan put on all the newspaper reporters, and Dylan says, well, they want me to put them on. I mean, if, if they were paying attention, I wouldn't have to put them on. If I told you ten things, and one of them was true, and nine of them were me stringing you along, would you know which one of the ten? And it's a, it's a very telling comment. You know, he's saying, I'm giving you the clues, which goes back to Chronicles. You know, there's more than enough clues in Chronicles to tell you 
don't take this at face value. You don't have to be me to go, no, sorry, that didn't happen. I mean, I, I remember reading it for the first time. The Sunday Times had asked me to review it, and I was reading it on a plane. The book wasn't out. There was no preconception. I hadn't read reviews or anything. And I'm reading there's verses that he claims are missing verses from songs in O Mercy. And I'm reading them, and I don't have any super knowledge about this. You know, I know the tapes and all that, but I read them and went, no, no. No way were these verses written in 1989. Now, of course, when I went to Tulsa and went through all the papers and all the manuscripts and there's mounds and mounds of manuscripts for O Mercy, I was proven right. None of these verses appear in any of the versions. You know, they were made up when he wrote the book. So what's going on there, Clinton? Is he, is he trying to protect himself by just throwing people off the scent? Yeah, he is. He is trying to protect himself, but he's also telling people not to believe what's in front of you. You know, he's right. asking people to appreciate that things are not always as they seem. I mean, you know, in other words, to keep you, you know, on the hop, if you like, when you listen to his work, when you, when you watch his films. You know, and I'm, I'm glad you have a similar view of Maston Anonymous to myself. I do, I do, I do, very much yeah. so. But Clinton, to come back to this, this question of your quite methodical, factual approach, do you see, or do you think Dylan would see that as in some way detracting from or undermining what he's doing? I mean, is he hostile to it? No, I think he demands it. Uh, I actually think that if there weren't people like me, he would have to invent someone <laughs> Because it's got to be a balance. You know, it has to be. Obviously, I would like to think that's part of the reason that the Dillon office cooperate on a reasonable level with, with the work that I do. And obviously, I've facilitated certain releases that have come out, certainly over the last decade, that I've had input into to help make it better. They need that. They need expertise. Dylan's not going to go through his shot of love of session reels and say, there's a great version of Dead Man in there somewhere. That seems absolutely right to me, Clinton. I, I must say, I mean, all this elusiveness anticipates, expects, re requires somebody to do the work that you're doing. In, in the midst of all this, speaking about uncertain things, can I ask you a question about him and God? I mean, <laughs> God is the ultimately uncertain thing. <laughs> and what, what you think's happened to his or what is ha still happening to his faith? Well, one of the interesting things about the Tulsa Archive is that it absolutely blasts out of the water the idea that Dylan became an apostate after 1981 or 1982, right. wherever the date is. The number of lost songs, lost verses, lost references to his faith are too numerous to count. There are entire songs. Uh, there is one called I'm playing to the same crowd that Jesus played to. A song that he wrote at some point in the 80s. We don't know when, unfortunately. And it's a wonderful song. But I mean, what an amazing idea that he's thinking about himself telling these parables to, yes. to, to these people in the same way. Yes. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about his uh, enduring Christian faith. Obviously, it's not the Christian faith that he subscribed to in 1979 when he became part of what can only be described as a very Californian born-again Christian cult. But Dylan distanced himself from that pretty quickly. 
Do you think Rix's, Christopher Rix's work in Dylan's Visions of Sin, which talks intensely, I mean, reads an enormous amount of theology into Dylan's lyrics. I mean, to my relatively untutored eye, he seems to me to, I think, to come out with abstruse Bible verse, I think Dylan couldn't possibly have known that or meant to refer to that. <laughs> oh, you've got to be um, wary about that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do, I mean, how do you two feel about that, if you know the work? I mean, I'm sure you do, Clinton. I mean, the thing is, never, ever assume that Dylan doesn't know it. I, I remember reading uh, a book, a not, a not a very good book, about Dylan and Dante, and uh, that was uh, published in America a few years ago, uh, called uh, Prophecy in the Christian Era. And the person made a reference to a line in Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall, and I can't quote it to you, and makes a comparison with, with part of Inferno. And when you looked at the two alongside each other, you went, yeah, this, 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 is, this can only be correct. You know, there's no way this is coincidence. There's no way this is... It is an exact allusion to Inferno. Um, and he mentions Dante in Tangled Up in Blue, doesn't he? Yeah, but we'd have, we would have expected Dylan to have read Dante by yeah. 1974. But, you know, he was barely 21 uh, when he wrote Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall, and there's no evidence, you know, that he would have read Dante, certainly not at college, certainly not at school. And yet, there it is. I mean, just quickly to answer the, your question immediately, Sam, about the Rick's book. Like you, I dare say, no doubt like you too, Clinton, I, I revere Rick's as a critic. I, I mean, he's been an incredibly important person for me, another very important person for me all my life. So it grieves me rather to say that I thought there was something slightly sort of overcooked about that book on Dylan, as though it had been sitting on the stove for too long or something like that. Anyway, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very glad it's in the world, but I, I, there, there was a slightly as I say, sort of overcooked feeling about it, I thought, by which I do not mean that I think that he's wrong in looking for these traces of other texts in, in Dylan's texts. But it seems to me that what we need to... What I certainly need to do when I think about this anyway is to remind myself how like a magpie Dylan is and that to be influenced, as we're saying he is, by Dante or Keats or whoever it might be that whose traces we can find in his poems in which Christopher brilliantly follows in a lot of his readings of the songs is not necessarily to think that Dylan got to that position of immersion by sitting for hours in the library but rather to say that he has this extraordinary capacity for very quick hits to take very rapid readings of, of people and absorb what he needs from them and then move on and this seems to me to take us back to the, the idea of the, the cormorant poet that we were talking about earlier Influence, after all, can happen, quite deep influence can, can be created by very glancing blows against an important other thing that a person is reading, can't it? Oh, absolutely. But also, of course, one of the things that becomes apparent as one explores the, the, the new official archive is Dylan's clear, conscious attempt to apply layers over the illusions so that... What appears in a song that you think, well, maybe is that about or is that about? And when you go backwards through the drafts, you see him making a very clear illusion and then seeking ways of actually applying curtains over it. So um, Andrew will be delighted uh, that I've always wondered about the reference in Joker Man uh, to Nightingale's tune, whether it was a reference right. to Keats. And uh, 
I can now confirm 100% it is. That's because in, in the original draft, it's a blatant <laughs> illusion. How fascinating. That's yeah. wonderful. You know, um, so things like that, that you realise he's a, he's a very conscious artist. And I think that's something that, that people don't give him enough credit for. I, I think I've said elsewhere that he's a wonderful editor of his words. I mean, when you actually see the manuscripts, the amount of times that he gets it wrong, that he picks a line and replaces it with a worse line, almost unheard of. And yet in the studio, the reverse. He will pick a performance that is patently inferior. Do you think in terms of the many things he does, you know, he's a performer, he's a creator of melodies and he's a, a you know, creator of these lyrics, these words or poems, if you want to call them that, do you think he's got a sort of weak spot? I know a lot of people have found the voice. You somewhere quotes a critic saying that it's like a dog with its foot stuck in some barbed wire and someone else saying, shut up, Bob, when he's singing in the car. But others, you know, think the, the voice is part of, of the whole gestalt. What, do you think there's any, any weak thing, any one thing he does better than any of the rest? Well, he can't play electric guitar to save his life. I mean, he is absolutely, for somebody who's played guitar as long as he has and who is actually a very adept acoustic guitar player, I mean, it is extraordinary how bad his electric guitar playing is. And uh, occasionally I've had the misfortune of being at concerts where I've actually been in front of his monitor where you can hear his guitar, which isn't in the mix, but is in the monitor. And it is like a four-year-old doing his scales at times. Well, that's encouraging. Let's hope for us all. So, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. I mean, the, the voice, though, I would have to say, and I, I don't know whether Andrew agrees, but I, I don't see the voice as one of Dylan's strings to his bow. I mean, I, it is the string. You know, without the voice, there is nothing. And those who find his voice unpalatable... You're never going to get beyond it because it's at the absolute heart of everything that he does. And usually when people tell me, as <laughs> invariably happens, oh, I like his songs, but he can't sing, I always say, well, who do you think is a good singer then? Yeah. I love to quote the line which was told to me. Um, somebody asked Tony Bennett if Dylan was, was a great singer. And Bennett replied, well, he might not be able to sing, but he sure can phrase. Oh, that's very good. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, that's very good. I like that a lot, I must say. Um, and actually, it prompts me to say something that was rather in my mind as I was listening to you too, which is that, as I'm sure you'd be the first to, to say yourself, it slightly restricts things to think of the, the voice in the singular, because actually there are voices, aren't there? And one of the fascinations of <laughs> listening to him sort of across the years is seeing the modulations of voice. One of my earliest Dylan me memories, I mean, who cares except for me about this, but one of my earliest Dylan memories is buying John Wesley Harding, which I think must have come out in the school holidays, and rushing home with it and playing it to my mum, knowing that she would sort of say the wrong thing, which was, this man, <laughs> this man can't sing. And right off the bat, she said, this man can't sing, and, and me thinking... That's it, that's it, that's what I like. This is what makes him mine and not yours, you know? Excellent. So there was that sort of early feeling of making some sort of accommodation in my mind for this very unusual sound, but as soon as you start to hear it, it's the sound you want to hear, and it's inconceivable now, of course, to think of him singing 
him singing those songs in any other way, though if you do want more melodically sung versions of them, then there are plenty out there, so nobody should be disappointed. Well, it's funny. I mean, my experience is uh, somewhat different from yours, Andrew, because I was introduced to that album by my stepmother, who had the uh-huh. album, and I was only oh, 13 or 14, and I had greatest hits, I had a couple of bootlegs, but I had all the early Dylan stuff. And I so I didn't have any post accident material at this point. And I and I listened to this record going, What the hell is this? You know? <laughs> um, and I love I love that record. It's one of my absolute favorite Dylan records. But it is that you know, you're absolutely right about the different voices. And that whole idea I, I, I was talking to somebody uh, on a American podcast and we were talking about the birds, Mr. Tambourine Man. And I, and I said, it is one of the most perfect pop songs ever. And an absolute travesty. An absolute destruction of Dylan's intentions. It destroys the song from within in order to create this perfect pop song. But as an insult to Dylan's art, there is few greater examples. <laughs> That's nicely put. Actually, Clinton, you mentioned your stepmother gave you John Wesley Harding. What was your entry point to Dylan? We've had Andrews. I mean, you know, what set you off on this lifelong... I don't want to say obsession, but you know, it's lifelong, intense interest. As, as I make that little dig in the introduction to the book about, you know, Dylan fans are called obsessives, Shakespeare fans are called scholars, you know. I, and I'm afraid it's true. Uh, the answer is I was introduced to him by an article in a magazine that I used to subscribe to called Let It Rock. And uh, the, the person writing the article, unbeknownst to me, because he wrote under an alias, was Michael Gray. And he was writing about bootlegs. And they sounded fantastic. I loved the whole kind of outlaw idea of bootleg albums. And he's writing at length about this album of Dylan at what we thought was the Royal Albert Hall, being booed and playing this amazing apocalypse. And and so I went out in search of this album. I mean, that was my I was determined to find this album. And because I lived in Manchester and there were bootleg shops. In the early 70s, there were bootleg shops. And somebody told me where to go, and I turned up and I said, I want to buy this album. And they said, we sold out. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, have you got any other albums by this guy? And they said, yeah, yeah, he's in this rack. And they pointed past the German porno. It was a porn short store. <laughs> and they had bootlegs at the back. And uh, I started flicking through the racks, and they had an album called Talking Bear Mountain Picnic Massacre Blues. And I'd read the lyrics in Writings and Drawings. And I loved them. I loved the lyrics to that song. And I was like, great, I'll buy that. So I took it home. And it's a bootleg of freewheeling outtakes of Dylan doing old blues songs, Milk Cow Blues and Worried Blues. And and I'd never heard the blues. I was 13, you know. I'd never heard any kind of blues music, you know, except maybe the Rolling Stones, you know, if that, if that counts. So the first thing I heard was acoustic, bluesy, proto-Dylan. The next thing I heard was the Albert Hall. <laughs> and 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 I'm looking at the recording dates and going, no, it can't be four years apart. Uh, I guess that's where I started writing this book because it was like, how do you get from that to that in four years? How do you both see? I mean, you know, you, Clinton, as a scholar, Andrew, you as a as a sort of a listener, the shape of Dylan's career. I mean, what are the big sort of breaks and jumps because we always hear you know the, the marriage breaking up the motorcycle accident the christian conversion the you know do, do you have a sort of shape in your head for how his career goes uh, well of course i've i've now 
put my neck on the block by ending the first volume in 1966. So I've only got to cover 55 years in the next one. Needless to say, it it keeps me awake at night. I, I don't. I mean, of course there are breaks, and of course you can chop the career any number of ways. Uh, it can be geographic. You know, you could make uh, an organisation based on where Dylan chose to live, uh, where he chose to write his songs. Uh, of course, the accident. Of course, the religious conversion represent demarcations, but. You know, as, I, as I've said before, I do love meeting people who think that Dylan lost it the day he fell off his motorcycle. And you sort of turn around and say, so let me get it straight. He lost it six months before he wrote The Basement Tapes and John Wesley Harding in the space of six months. So what, 40 masterpieces? Yeah. In six months? <laughs> and that's that's your idea of somebody who's lost it. Let, let alone the marvellous late period stuff too, which is... As good as anything, I think. Yeah, of course. I mean, you can't. You, you know, is is the material that he wrote for Oh Mercy uh, any any less inspired, whatever that word means, right, right. than than the material that he wrote for Planet Waves? Of course not. Yeah. I mean, to go back to your original question, Sam, I think that we we somehow grow up with the idea, don't we, that either the best poets die young or they kind of lose their mojo about halfway through, but. Dylan's story, as we, as we actually seem to be saying in a number of different ways, is really a story of, of reinvention um, over and over again. It's not just a reinvention of a tradition in order to get going in the first place, but at various key points, driven, no doubt, by, partly by these kind of big narrative events, the motorbike accident, the, the conversion, etc., but also by a sort of deepening sense of his own identity to himself, if I can put it like that, so that as the vision becomes darker it becomes more profound as well which is not inevitably the, the case I think so that it is a, an extraordinarily long story a very unusually long story of, of development actually people are reluctant to make comparisons with with other great writers you know in terms of longevity I mean but there are plenty of examples of, of writers actually, the number of people who write the number of poets who write as well as Dylan is writing at the age of 80 are very few and far between I think Either because they're mainly because they're dead. <laughs> mainly because they're dead. <laughs> well, yes, and certainly yes. in the old days they were I mean, dead. Yeah. I don't know when Yeats died, but Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeats is the, the exception proving the rule, I think. And and Hardy. But as Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course Hardy <laughs> almost didn't start until he was like Well, exactly. Exactly. Um, um you know, but uh, I mean it would be fascinating to to engage with Dylan on that idea because yes. you, you know, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said it about lyric poets tend to write their best work when they're young, epic poets tend to write their best work, you know. When they're old. That's true, yeah, quite. And, of course, with Dylan, that becomes a problem because he does both. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes, it's very impressive, you know, that. You know, Brownsville Girl, uh, you know, is an astonishing work of an epic poet and Tomorrow's a Long Time is an astonishing work of a lyric poet. Yeah. And these musings in rough and rowdy ways, I mean... I, of course, like you, Clinton, I want him to live forever because I always want to know what's going to happen next. Ah, oh, well, you say that. I, I mean, basically, I want him to die about a year before I do, just so that I've got yes. time to get the picture. Yeah, <laughs> yes, well, I'll give you that. Sure, or, or a year before your next book's published. No, no, I didn't say that. I did not say that. I would uh, never say that. But, uh, I, no, but I don't I want know. to be alive for long without him writing new things. I mean, I feel yeah, like that exactly. about it, you know. And I quite su surprised myself by how 
much I mind the thought of being alive when he isn't and isn't able to write new things for me to listen to. Well, he's a bit older than you, Andrew, so let's hope he soldiers on for a long time. Andrew Motion, Clinton Hayland, thank you very much indeed both for your time. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.